Good morning. Listeners here and around the world, you're listening to On the Menu with Ann and Peter Haig. Uh, happy 2021 to all of you. And well, we I hope, hope it'll be better than 2020. <laughs> yes, indeed. And I hope you're not all hungover because um, we're going to be talking about nutrition right off the bat with somebody who knows a lot about it, Kathy uh, Carly Kellogg-Knowles. Carly Kellogg-Knowles, it has a ring to it. And uh, and then we're going to swing immediately into something that you should give your attention to called the Lost Apple Project. Well, we're going to be talking to Carly Kellogg-Knowles, and uh, is it a coincidence, Carly, that your middle name is synonymous with food, Kellogg? <laughs> you know, I think it is only that, a coincidence, but I, I l- rather like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyhow, um, you, you have a book out called The Nutritionist Kitchen, and you are, in fact, you have a lot of, um, uh, of letters after your name, and you are a, um, uh, tell me your, your biggest title, the RDN. Yeah. RDN stands for Registered Dietitian Nutritionist. Nutritionist. So, so that means you I, know all of those things. <laughs> I work very hard. I got a master's degree in uh, nutritional science, and I worked my tail off for those little letters. <laughs> I bet you did, too. Um, yeah, I've known a few nutritionists in my day, and, and it's not easy. <laughs> One of them was um, uh, the, the uh, dietitian nutritionist for our local football NFL team. And oh, she had, fun. <laughs> well, she had a terrible time explaining proper nutrition to these massive guys who really just oh wanted God. Twinkies. <laughs> you know, I think that would be a really hard job, but also so fun, right, to work with athletes? Yeah, well, it's true. I mean, it, I was doing an article on, um, uh, I don't know what it was called, Nutrition for Athletes or something like that. And, um, and so that's how I got to know this woman. And I'd never thought about it. But you know, one of her things was, she had to take them grocery shopping. <laughs> oh, how fun. Yeah, yeah you know, she... before COVID, I used to do um, grocery store tours, and it's a really fun uh, way to interact with your clients or your patients. I bet football players would have some fun <laughs> things in their grocery cart. <laughs> well, you know, she had a trade-off all the time. You know, you can have this if, if you get four of these, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, I love it. <laughs> well, anyhow, we're we're talking to you about this book, which when I say it's dense, I mean in terms of information, and I mean it as a compliment. Um, there's just so much to know. <laughs> you know? True. Uh, your your premise is that food is medicine. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. It is. That's correct. No, I mean, it, it It was serendipitous that you had your, your great discovery and revelation about what you were going to do with your life when you were in Peru in this small remote village. Um, because I, I'm, I'm, still, I'm still puzzling over how you got there and why. She yeah. did an exchange program, didn't you? Well, I, I actually was, worked with... It was something to do with the Peace Corps, right? So two two people that had previously been in the Peace Corps started their own nonprofit um, in Portland, Oregon, actually where I'm from, and um, we traveled together to Peru to this small village called San Francisco, which is uh, very high north in the country, and we worked with the community there in this nonprofit that they started to um, work with the youth specifically on health and hygiene and um, just had the most incredible experience. Uh, I was there for quite some time and got to really um, immerse myself in a new culture, country, language, food, culture. It's amazing. The whole thing. It, I mean, uh, we, we, went to the, we went to the, uh, what's the name of that big food festival? It happens once a year. It is Mistura, spread out. Mistura. What's it called? Mistura. Mistura. Did you ever... Here, Ms. No. 
No, well, it sprawls on the beach. I mean, for like a long ways on the beach, and there, everyone has a section for um, their their like. The, there's one section that only does um, a certain kind of um, what? Give me an example, rabbit. I don't know. I mean, there was one. The one that stuck in my mind was the was the fish, the piace, which is a fish with a very small head and a very large body. Yeah. <laughs> but, but anyhow, we we were there for the Latin American Fifty Best Restaurant Awards, and went to all of wow. the um, all of the fancy restaurants and the wonderful restaurants in uh, Lima, and of which the food was yeah. great. I mean, it's a blend of everything. Um, Isn't it? Yeah, I mean, well, it's you know Indian, it's um, Italian, it's Spanish, Japanese, it's, uh, Japanese, uh, Chinese. Mm-hmm. We went to a quirky little Chinese place, and um, but we also went to the Potato Museum or the Potato oh, Museum. Oh, so fun! <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and and one of the things that stands out in my mind is that a potato diet automatically uh, lacks an essential, which was, I believe, vitamin A, wasn't it? Uh, it, was, it was zinc and something else, I think. I think it was, it was more oh, than zinc. But, I mean, there's nothing yeah. in potatoes that would satisfy that nutritional need. But they were doing research, yeah. at, they were doing research at the Potato Institute into varieties of potatoes which had more of these trace minerals, which which it turns out are so important and which are lacking in a diet where you only eat potatoes. Now, were you, were, yeah. you in the high, were you in the high Andes? or? I, so I, technically I was at the base of the Andes. Um, okay. So I was in this really unique climate where the desert meets the jungle and we're practically right in the middle of the two. So it was very, very dry, yet just a few miles um, northeast of us were the beginning of the Andes and some of the jungle area. Um, but when you talk about this extremely limited diet, that's exactly what I witnessed in this town that I was what, what, in. You said you found white spots in their eyes. Yeah, so I was there with two other um, two other Americans, and we were very curious. We had never seen it before. Um, many of the young kids even, but especially the adults, had these spots on their eyes, and they were, you know, a little um, raised, and they were foggy or if not completely opaque. And we had to do some research, and we didn't have Internet because there was no electricity out there. Oh, so right, there to, wouldn't be. There wasn't, no. So we had to do a lot of reading, and then when we went back to town every now and again, we would get on the Internet and we'd search around for what was going on. And it took us some time, but we eventually found out that they um, had vitamin A deficiency, which um, a late-stage sign of vitamin A excuse me, deficiency is what they call bitted spots um, on the eyes. And it grows this tissue over the, the cornea of the eye, and it's a sign of this deficiency. And that just blew me away. Um, you know, it's it's not uncommon in third world countries or developing countries um, to have deficiencies. But this, you know, gal from Portland, Oregon, uh, had never seen it before, and it it really it was really a profound moment for me. Um, I started to do more research on nutrition and the impacts that our food have uh, has on us, and I just became totally. Um, Honestly, obsessed. I needed to know as much as I could about food, and uh, I really wanted to share that information with people that didn't have access to that because it seemed like something in a way that could be so simple to fix or to uh, remedy with our food if it's just about learning, you know, what foods we might need to combat some of those issues. So it was a real aha moment. But there's so much to know about nutrition, and um, you know, and you have, as I said, you have packed information in this book um, that you wrote, um, and you're all about not just um, 
watching what you eat, but watching having the right combinations and also it has to be delicious so that people want to eat it and also everything has to be balanced out. So it's not all that easy, is it? You know, it it doesn't have to be difficult, but it isn't naturally this simple concept. No, it's not easy at first. And what my goal as a dietitian when I work with patients or when I'm writing these books or I'm writing a recipe for a magazine or something, my goal is to start small and help people walk their way into healthy eating because, like you just said, it's so complicated or it can be. And if we if we start out, you know, overwhelming everyone, no one's going to want to learn about nutrition because that's not fun. They're always going to feel less than or confused or frustrated. So my goal, especially with this book, was really to try to break these concepts down into small, palatable concepts that we could just hit one at a time. And that's really what I try to do when I work with people is just little by little, instead of we all think, you know, we're all used to diets, right? We think we have to revolutionize our whole way of being in order to be healthy. And that's just not realistic or sustainable. Right. So we do one one step at a time. Well, you start out with the the principles right then and there. You're hitting in something that most people don't even understand. Yeah. But it's true. Yeah, the principles. I try to... Why don't you tell the story of the... Of the diet of Twinkies. What? <laughs> you remember? You remember you, you you were talking with Katie about oh yeah. having a having a diet that consisted of all the all the Twinkies you could eat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, well, I, 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 he's joking. I mean, my trainer. <laughs> all these people make all this money off of these lunatic, goofy diets. And so I said, I tried to talk her into, um, and mind you, she's an exercise physiologist and nutritionist. I tried talking her into going along with starting a company that promoting this diet, which was, what was it? It was a sauerkraut and all you can eat fried Twinkies. (laughs) (laughs) What a combination. (laughs) Yeah, well, I thought it would sell, but she wouldn't do it. And guess well, what? See, if, you, and if you if you indulge in that diet, you get black spots on your eyes <laughs> instead of white ones. Well, you know, it's it's pretty. It, so the diet industry, right, is like seventy plus billion dollar industry, and yeah, people yeah. are drawn to it because we we've in supposedly made it so easy. All you have to do is eat sauerkraut and Twinkies or whatever <laughs> the new the new diet is but healthy eating and nutrition you know when we look at food as medicine it's a bigger lifestyle lifestyle commitment or change and it is my goal again to not overwhelm people with that concept but excite people and to make that to make i'm sorry there yeah okay yeah, my goal is to make that fun and easy. And you said something. You said something before, uh, Anne. You said it has to be food that tastes good. Right. Um, that's so important to me. We can't eat. You know, we we love food, or we can love food. I do. I never want to turn people away from that con- like that fact. Like, let's love food first. Then let's mm-hmm. get into the science and talk about how to help help each other out with it. Well, you, you talk about MNT. Tell us about that. Yes. Yeah. So MNT is, um, it stands for medical nutrition therapy. So that's actually, um, it's evidence-based nutrition recommendations that dietitians and physicians use. Um, so there's a lot of science behind these medical nutrition therapy recommendations. So if someone has diabetes, for example, there are MN, there's an MNT or a therapeutic diet that's been highly researched um, that has been shown to help um, combat diabetes. And it's, it's, we call it the gold standard in 
um, nutrition care uh, because it comes with so much research, and it's actually something that um, international it, it actually works. It, I mean, it, it, it actually works. works. We we interviewed <laughs> yeah. a woman who was um and she was from India, and her husband was too, and he was diabetic, and he was really. He craved his native cuisine. I didn't know until talking to her that India is the diabetes capital of the universe. And mm. and she took all the traditional recipes and modified them, you know, with this kind of thing, with the MT for diabetes. And he yeah. he had been on insulin. She got him off of insulin and, and without Amazing. diabetes and, and eating the food he loved. So it works. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, yes. it does. And it's it's highly researched. And I think that's something we, in the nutrition and wellness world, health world, a lot of people can call themselves nutritionists and they don't need to have a background in nutrition education or in science. Um, but as a registered dietitian, nutritionist, you have to, it comes with a, a um, requirements. You know, you have to have your master's degree. I believe that's changing soon that you're required to have your master's degree. I think now you can actually still have your bachelor's. But my point is is that it's a, um, it's, it comes with, you know, requirements for these credentials. And so what that does is you have the opportunity to study um, the research. So it's all research-based. These aren't opinions. These aren't you right. know, stories about what works for one person or another. This is research, science, you know, driven research, which is a really important distinction. Um, well, you know where they should when start. Where they should start is doctors who don't know anything about nutrition for the most part. <laughs> oh, right. Anne, don't get me started. I'm married to well, one Well, I mean, guys. I know. Don't get me started. <laughs> I, I mean, <laughs> yeah, hold on a minute. She said she married one, right? Did I get that correct? I married one of them. He's, he's a fabulous general surgeon. Yeah, but he doesn't um, know anything about nutrition. Does he, but, does you know, it's funny. Oh Go gosh, ahead. no! Thankfully, <laughs> he, Go ahead. No, it's surprisingly, though. Large, surprisingly large number of doctors do. Go ahead. Yeah, you know, Sorry, it's, go ahead. yeah. In medical school, there's um, depending on the school and the program, of course. There's not a lot of required nutrition courses, no. <laughs> and I, I don't, I don't actually see that as a, a bad thing. I wish, of course, that we all had a broader uh, education base. It'd be nice if our doctors knew um, knew a little bit more, of course. But I, I do think when you work with a registered dietitian, you are, are working with, with, you know, a food nutrition expert. Like, we are specialists. That's what we did. We're not studying the whole body. We're studying nutrition, digestion, metabolism. You know, that's our focus. And so I don't I don't see it as a horrible thing. I see it as just an opportunity to collaborate with doctors and to, um, you know, consider us specialists. And I think really, really um, great doctors see it that way. And others try to um, do it themselves, and some do it better than others. And maybe that's all we'll say about that for now. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so moving on, you say... What qualifies food as medicine? And you go through a lot of principles on this, which uh, how about start with one, choice and awareness. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I think this is just, it was so important for me to say this right off the bat. If we are going to transform our food into medicine, if we're going to decide that our food can have therapeutic properties, we have to consciously make that choice. So you have to bring awareness and curiosity to your food and to your understanding of what that will do for you and for your body, your mind, the whole picture. So it's not just enough to pick foods that, you you know, someone else told you were good for you. It's really, for me, you need to get on board with the fact that Food can actually change the way you live. Food can actually make you feel better. Food can actually energize. 
Um, but you have to bring a conscious awareness to that. And, and for me, that's a distinction that not every person makes when they choose to start a healthy diet or healthy living. Um, and for me, that's a big, you can't skip over that piece. It's number one for me for a yeah, reason exactly. because it, it's, a, it's a really important, it's like a commitment to yourself that that's how you're going to see, to see food. And it's, it can be a really helpful tool. Well, you know, there was a time when, I mean, sometimes a lot of my family have been asking me about um, when I would visit my uncle's farm in Ohio. And, you know, mm-hmm. and you, you have that section on uh, what, what would grandma say, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> there was a time when it wouldn't even be a question of what is a whole food or what is a processed mm-hmm. food. Why don't you address those two issues there? Yeah, so you brought up the um, my note about what grandma would do. So I have a little a subheader in my book or a subsection about um, this concept my husband and I came up with when we were traveling. We were actually on our honeymoon, um, and it was really great. We went to Barcelona, Spain, and we, we just were amazed by how different the food shopping experience was uh, that we witnessed, and that was mostly in large markets. And when I say markets, maybe something comparable to like a farmer's market here. Um, and you ate with the seasons naturally because that's what the, the purveyors and the um, businesses were bringing to the market. And so just by chance, we watched um, this woman who we named Grandma, very lovingly Grandma. She doesn't isn't aware of any of this, but... Um, we asked, like, what would grandma do? So she would spend time. She'd walk herself to the market. She'd pick out her <laughs> weekly weekly produce and goods. And by, by doing that naturally in this place, she just ended up with, with food that wasn't processed. They aren't in boxes and packages. They're fresh, whole foods um, that just happen to be in season. And how just that small act is revolutionary. And like you said... Growing up with family that had a farm, you were yeah. surrounded by food food that just existed. We haven't we haven't messed with it. Humans haven't um, been as involved. For example, an apple. You know what? What did your your family grow on their farm? Well, uh, the, my uncle's farm that I'm referring to uh, was a dairy farm, so we had that. But we he also grew, you know veggies and cord and and so forth and then a neighbor's farm they grew nothing but berries and so i mean there was a whole community of farms and meanwhile i mean there was no issue of organic or non-organic in my household because my parents always had a garden in fact my my mother's whole family they all had gardens and so all the food was uh, i mean there was no question about what was um, you know, organic or not. Yeah, and that's, you know, when I talk about whole foods, that you nailed it on the head. Like that's whole food is food that that comes from nature. It's um, naturally in its whole form. So I said apple before. Like an apple, you pick off the tree, you yes. let it grow, you grabbed it off the tree and you ate it. You can't get any closer to a whole food than that. Um but we the same with we live tomatoes, in a world. you know, in season. Uh, You're also tomatoes, big on yeah. seasonal uh, food, which is something yeah. that that we're uh, we're kind of removed from as well, since we can get things from all over the world all year round. Yeah, and that's and you know what a convenience, right? Like we're so lucky that oh, that's yeah. an option for us, but it also has some some negative implications, and that removes us farther away from seasonal eating, which does have some health benefits, um, but also seasonal eating is really a fantastic thing for our communities. It supports our local economies, um, and it even has, like I said, some health implications. So my my whole thing as a dietitian is to simplify the concept of healthy eating and start with this base of whole foods where you're eating food in its original form. There's no shame. 
There's no diets. There's no um, <laughs> there's no real food rules. It's just about adding in all these wonderful things you can have and enjoy versus talking and focusing about what you can't have. Um, right. But it's there's a lot. It is dense. It is dense, and it uh, yeah. But it doesn't have to be. Well, you jump into one of the most difficult areas. <laughs> because it's been so politicized, is organic foods. You, I thought your approach to this was really very sensible. Tell us your standing on organic and non-organic. I love the way you sorted through things with um, thick skins. I mean, I, it's just so sensible. <laughs> oh, thanks. And, you know, I knew when I was writing this that I needed to be really careful because, like you said, it is very politicized. And and the truth is we're still learning a lot about the science of organic food versus conventional food. Um, so to, to just start out, um, you know, there are requirements in order for your food to be labeled organic. And I won't get into all of that. You can read about it. Yeah, in it's complicated, I know. It can be, yeah, but... But for me, I wanted to go through, because that's, as a dietitian, that is a question I get asked all the time. It, are organic foods really that much better? Or if I only could afford certain organic foods, which, which food groups should I prioritize? So I, I dove into the research and I looked at where we actually have research that says it's, you know, it's worth it or um, there are really important health benefits to organic, or that we're still kind of undecided about which way to go, organic or conventional. So I tried to break it down. I talk about different fruits and vegetables, um, beans and legumes, dairy, et cetera. Um, one fun little um, resource I love to share with my patients, friends, family, is, um, I, have you heard of this? the clean 15 or the dirty dozen. Yeah, right. I, I saw that in your book. And, and Tell us about that. Yeah. That's really cool. It's so interesting. I went through all kinds of trauma when I learned that lemons, um, you know, after years of, of doing the, the um, uh, lemon rinds and things, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, I read where that's where they, the lemons store all the... Um, the uh, whatever those things are, the, you know, the poisons they Toxins, put on everything. Toxins, pesticides, <laughs> yeah, fertilizer, so, so, yeah. So that would go in your category of always get organic, right? You know, so I won't even say yes to that because every year we learn something different about each fruit and vegetable. So, okay. again, instead of thinking we have to know everything, let's go to the specialist who is doing this research in real time because that's the person, those are the people, that's the organization that's going to know the best and and who I recommend for that question and for the concept of the Dirty Dozen and the Clean 15 is the Environmental Working Group. So they come up with this list every year. They update it based on research and evidence on which foods have the least pesticides and we call those the Clean 15. Yeah. And which foods have the most pesticides. And it's usually produce we're talking about. And they call that the dirty dozen. And every year you want to update yourself on what the new list is, but it, it doesn't often change. Um, but those are the, the produce, for example, you want to prioritize organic or that you don't have to. Um, because we do know organic food can sometimes be a little more expensive. And so it might not be realistic right, to do it all the time. Right. Now, one, yeah. one section that I questioned about, which is, is personal to me and was like a torture when I was a kid, when you're talking about it's not just what you eat, it's how you eat, you know, yes. the way you eat. And, and yep. you talk about slowing down. One of the ways I was tortured as a child was having to count the number of times I chewed something. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so they wanted you to slow down. Is that was that their goal? Exactly. But your, I just have yeah. a negative reaction to it. <laughs> well, yeah, fair I, I enough. You, fair she's enough. Also, I, she's also a fast eater. What? 
yep. and you're also a fast eater. Yeah, I know I was. We, we, and we, we sit down to dinner together and, uh, and, and finish before I'm halfway through. <laughs> of course, and I also you, don't eat as you, much as you do. But anyhow, you know, go it's ahead. funny. We all we all have our things, right? Like some of us are fast eaters, some slow. I I find that for a lot of us, it can it can be really impactful to slow down while you're eating. I actually uh-huh. have a handful of patients who, in my history working as a dietitian, who swore they had some really severe like indigestion or even like some sort of GI problem, something they needed to find out what it was, get it diagnosed and solve it. You know, and so we, I sent them to different specialists to get imaging done or to have blood work done um, to try to find what the, the culprit was. And in the end, and this is not for, this is not everybody, of course, but like I said, a handful of patients I've seen, it was just the fact they needed to slow down when they ate and yeah. to chew better and to, to really slow down. It made that much of a difference. They actually yeah, were convinced that, they were sick. Yeah. But well, it's not know, easy, is it? <laughs> <laughs> it depends. I mean, if you, the problem is, as you point out, we were so busy rushing through one thing after another in our lives yeah. that it, it's hard to take the time to slow down and and do this mindful eating and so forth. But um, it's true. You, you you touch on um, uh, spices, which I'm happy to see that since more people are cooking at home and they can't go out to restaurants, there's a renewed interest in spices and you know herbs mm-hmm. and spices and. Um, uh, did you ever see that book called Spice Heroes? No. It's I'm good. You it should read right that. Now. I mean, it's wonderful. Number one spice hero is turmeric, you know, which you never even used yeah. to hear about. Yeah. So that's a good book. But that can make all the difference to the world if you find out what the, what these spices are that really affect your health. And they've been developed over all these years in different uh, global cuisines. Isn't it true? It's so interesting. Like, I I agree with you. Turmeric is is the um, food trend these days. Everyone wants to use it and cook with it, but it's so funny because I'm sure you know and I've learned when writing this book, it's nearly 4,000 years old. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You know, it's, it's a root or a rhizome that's been around for a long time, but it's now for some reason just this health, fancy health, um, health food and supplement and i i think if we use it in our food especially it is so it it can be really transformational it has so many medicinal properties but it's also beautiful right we talked about how important it is to it's also a boom it's a boom for dentists because it stains your teeth yeah it stains everything doesn't it i have white countertops and i I get nervous when I pull out the turmeric, but yeah, it's it's a cool, it's a very cool spice, and it adds so much flavor to like a, a typical, you know, weeknight dinner. You can just completely change change it with a little turmeric. Well, and Peter makes coffee. the ultimate yeah. to die for chicken soup. It's uh, yeah. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Welcome back, and as I said, next up is something that I'm very interested in. Um, it's, it's a curious corner of, of history, uh, the breeding of fruit or the uh, the loss of, of some fruits and vegetables over history. Um, and so we're going to be talking about the Lost Apple Project. I listened to David Benskogner. You got that right? Benskogner. Ben Scooter, Ben Scouter. Sorry, sorry about that, David. We're not, <laughs> not going to do it over again, but we do 
to apologize for our mispronunciation. And uh, here you are. Well, David Benscoder, is that how you pronounce that, Benscoder? Uh, ben Scotter. Ben Scotter, okay, like in Scots, okay. Um, you're going to have to give us a little background on this. Um, it, you're going to be talking to us about the Lost Apple Project, and there's a whole lot of background information that we need uh, about this. Um, we already told you off um, the uh, off our camera, but off the uh, recorder, um, that we're, we're nutcases about apple breeding. <laughs> I, mean, I have no idea why, but we just sort of fell into it. It's such a fascinating field. Um, let's start off in a logical um, order here with your background, which is really interesting. Go ahead. Uh, yes, I, uh, I was in federal law enforcement uh, for 24 years, and uh, I really had uh, no idea that I would be doing what I'm doing today, which is uh, looking for lost or extinct varieties of apples, but uh, <laughs> it just kind of uh, uh, fell into my lap, and uh, it, it, was, it, was, it was interesting because I... This was about, I want to say, about 2011 or 2012, and I, um, I met a lady in my church who was a former missionary and uh, uh, is disabled, and so I would go over to her house and do little chores every now and then, and, and one day she asked me if I could pick some apples for her from her orchard, and I said, sure, and she actually lived on uh, her family's farm, and uh, there was an orchard about maybe 300 yards away from the house uh, up on the side of a hill. I hadn't paid a lot of attention to it, but uh, the, the family orchard had been there probably since the early uh, uh, 1900s. And so I grabbed a bucket and I grabbed a, a ladder and I went over to the orchard and came back in about five minutes. And I told her, I can't pick a single apple in that orchard. They're, the trees are too high and all the apples are you know 30 40 feet high in these trees but i said i know how to prune an apple tree and i said uh I've, i'd always had at least one apple tree where i'd lived and uh my dad had taught me how to prune apple trees so i said i'll i'll come back in the uh in the spring but when the trees are dormant and i said i'll i'll prune the trees and in probably two or three years you'll start getting apples so so that eventually that's what I did. But over that first winter, I, I was kind of thinking, and we we get quite a bit of snow here. We're on the uh, very uh, east side of Washington, kind of right up against Idaho and right up against the Rocky Mountains. And it was probably on a, a cold, snowy day, and I was just thinking about those apples, and I knew I I didn't know any varieties that she probably had, had in that orchard. So I called her up, and I said, do you know what? apples are in that orchard and she remembered one was a yellow transparent and then she called her brother and uh he remembered that there were several wealthy apples but they didn't know any of the other varieties and so i just started uh to get on the internet and do research on apple growing in uh eastern washington and where we live everybody knows that of course uh washington is the nation's leading producer of apples but that's not even close to where we live that's all along the uh, the Columbia River, which kind of snakes through the central part of Washington, and all, uh, and then all on the tributaries into the Columbia River, and that's where all the orchards are uh, that produce the, the the millions and millions of Washington apples, and uh, they they receive irrigation, uh, they receive water uh, from the Columbia and its tributaries, so they can control. Uh, how much water they get, and, and the the conditions just perfect for apple growing. Well, over here uh, on in eastern Washington, we don't have the Columbia, and a lot of the orchards that were planted here, yeah, even small commercial orchards in early 1900s, were what they would call dryland orchards and had to rely on rain. Well. Anyway, I got on the Internet, and I just found a fascinating amount of history in eastern Washington. Uh, I live near Spokane, and I found that uh, about 20 miles away from where I live, 
was at one time uh, what they referred to as the largest orchard in the world. Really? Yeah, 20,000 acres. Now, I never found any proof that they actually planted 20,000 acres. I think maybe they had 20,000 acres under control that they could have planted. Uh, The project eventually collapsed and... and, uh, uh, for a v- variety of reasons, but uh, I just found an amazing history of apple growing in eastern Washington. And eventually I, I uh, wrote a little little paper on uh, a commercial uh, enterprise that uh, uh, was a uh, small commercial operation that uh, no one had ever written about, and it was picked up by, I believe it was the... Uh, uh, there's a National Fruit Growers Association, and anyway, they picked up the article. And I was, and I, so I just kind of became interested. And then one day, I was looking at a newspaper out of Colfax, Washington, which is a county. Uh, Colfax is in Whitman County, about 70 miles south of Spokane. And I was looking at this one uh, gentleman who had introduced an apple. Uh, one of only two apples, actually, that were successfully introduced from eastern Washington. The fellow's name was George Rudy, and he introduced an apple that was called the Palouse. And on the same page as uh, this article was uh, an article about the county fair. And I thought, oh, my goodness, that's probably pretty interesting. Maybe I'll find out. Uh, you know, I didn't know how apples were uh, Apples were submitted to a fair. Sometimes I know fairs gave prizes for the best uh, display of apples. Uh, I didn't know, you know, if, if it was, you know, the best spring apple or summer apple, best fall apple, best. I just didn't know how they would uh, give prizes. So I started looking through the, the prize winners that were listed in the county fair. And after looking at about two entries, it was it was like one of those light bulbs you see in cartoons that go um, yeah. go off over your head, and the way that they were recording or that they were giving prizes was they gave a prize for every apple variety that was entered in the fair, and I just knew that that was something extremely significant, and I knew that if they gave a prize for every apple that was entered in the fair over, let's say, a 10-year period, and the newspaper recorded that every uh, every year, that I have a pretty good vari- uh, idea of what was growing in the county. Oh, yeah. Nice. And, and I knew from reading uh, some books, I picked up some books. One of the books was a book called Old Southern Apples by Lee Calhoun. And Lee just uh, died this past spring, uh, just right before COVID hit. And uh, uh, Lee, Lee had written a book, and the first part of the book, uh, he, it was a very large book, but the first half of the book was on old southern apples that still exist, and the second half of the book are, was about old southern apples that were believed to be extinct. And that's where I first knew or became to know that apples actually were extinct varieties of apples, and that uh, Lee had looked for them and had found quite a few, and there were some other people uh, that had looked for apples and found apples. Uh, one interesting thing that I found was every one of those people that had looked for apples were located along the East Coast. Uh, John Bunker in Maine, uh, Tom Brown in North Carolina, Lee Calhoun in uh, South Carolina, uh, uh, Tom Burford in Virginia, and I, could, I didn't know why. I just knew that all these previous apple uh, hunters had been along the eastern coast. And so when I saw those articles, I I thought, well, I'm going to write down those names. So I just scribbled down as many names as I could and uh, went back to Lee Calhoun's book and looked in the the back of his book for uh, apple names, and by golly, there were some names of lost apples. Yeah, give us the numbers. I mean, I was so impressed with the numbers. Well, uh, there uh, in the history of North America, there have been about 17,000 named varieties of apples. And of those 17,000 named varieties, there's only about, I would guess, 4,500 
uh, apples uh, that are still available to people, and the rest are believed to be extinct. <laughs> and, and how does an apple become extinct? Nobody plants them anymore. Yeah, you know, uh, I think they, that they're referred to as being, uh, uh, I'm trying to... Uh, to recall the words that I've heard, but but basically uh, they they haven't been seen since uh, about 1920. And I wow. actually came across an, an article in a in a fruit magazine out here uh, from Portland, Oregon, and it was a it was a magazine that uh, I think it was a monthly magazine to nursery owners, and it actually gave a list of apples, and they said. Do not sell these trees anymore. Uh, there, uh, there's, you know, people don't want as many varieties. And of course, the people that wrote that article had no idea that a hundred years later, probably more than fifteen or twenty of those varieties would be considered extinct. But uh, yeah, they they basically told the nurseryman, don't plant these any, anymore. Well, there's usually a reason why people don't replant varieties. I mean, I know like the ones that we've talked to that bred apples in, in um, like Minnesota, I mean, they, they had it to change the, um, the, um, the, 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 the apple itself because it didn't do well in that cold. Right. So they had to then turn around and breed for the climate that they were in. Yeah. I mean, are all these some, Packing simply because they didn't meet um, what people wanted. You know, I think uh, I, yes. I, I would say uh, overall that's probably a, a good way to put it. Uh, uh, you can tell from e- uh, most of the apples uh, the reason they went extinct. For example, uh, several of the apples are, are just too small. They could never make it in a commercial. Uh, you know, setting right. in a grocery store because they're just too small of apples. Although, you know, Gurney's, I think it's Gurney's or maybe Stark Brothers, has come out with a, uh, an apple, I think it's called the Pixie Crunch now. And oh, yeah. uh, it's, it's advertised and targeted to school children, that it's a small apple that you can put in a s- child's lunchbox. Uh, but you'd never see it at a store. It's something for you know for a person to buy and have the apples at home. But uh, that's like the, the little the little um, yeah tangerine things that yeah they, that's right that's yeah. right. Well, Dan, let, let's let's go let's go halfway across the world, shall we? And talk sure. and talk about and talk about an apple which was developed in a place where people said apples can't grow; it's too hot. And, and, yes, go ahead. Know, but, but an old lady called Mrs. Smith said, no, that, no, that's that's not right. We can make apples grow here in a suburb of Sydney, Australia. Yes. And, yeah. that, and then was born the, the Granny Smith, which has now been adopted around the world. But that, yes. And then you have, you have the rest of the story. Well, I do, I do have an interesting story regarding the... The Granny Smith, actually, it's an apple uh, that was named the Red Granny Smith. And I'll, I'll take you back a few years uh, to, I believe it was 2015, and uh, the, uh, I found my first lost variety uh, here in eastern Washington at the base of uh, Steptoe Butte, uh, and I believe it was 2014, and it was an apple called the Nero. And the Nero is a, a small apple, and, and undoubtedly it, it was uh, uh, not a, a good commercial apple and, and because it was too small. But uh, the following year, uh, I found, uh, I believe it was three other apples, and two of them were on Stepto Butte. One was called uh, the Arkansas Beauty, oh. and uh, it, w- it was uh, it was a very good apple. And uh, in a few years, uh, I actually just a couple 
maybe a year and a half ago, I got involved with a WSU professor who was, uh, is, uh, I'm sorry, Washington State University, which is yeah, yeah. Uh, Eastern Washington. And he was doing DNA research on apples. And he asked for if I could uh, get a, a leaf from the... Uh, Arkansas Beauty and give it to him so he could have the DNA on file. So I did that, and then uh, about, I don't know, six six to nine months ago, he got a report back from uh, wherever he had sent the leaf for DNA, and he said, uh, he called me up, and he said, uh, I've got some news for you. I said, well, what, what is it? And he said, the DNA of the Arkansas Beauty came back as the same DNA as a apple down in Australia called the Red Granny Smith. Wow. <laughs> well, and I'm th- and uh, so I, at first I was pretty stumped, and it was just uh, qu- it was quiet on the phone. I'll say for about fifteen <laughs> for about fifteen seconds, and if you can imagine. Uh, it would be something like if someone came to you and said, we found someone with your DNA on the other side of the world. Uh-huh. And it, it, it just had that, the same, pretty similar effect. And so after a few moments, I said, I think I know what happened. And he said, okay, go ahead. And I said, well, first of all, the Arkansas beauty was found originally in Arkansas. I believe it was found in Arkansas, I'm going to say about the 1870s. It could have been the 1860s. The Arkansas beauty became somewhat popular and, and uh, made its way out west. It was in several new, uh, several catalogs for nurseries uh, here in the northwest. And uh, there was actually uh, even a, an apple was sent to the U.S. Department of Agriculture by someone who, who lives in eastern Washington, uh, and a watercolor painting was painted of the apple. Really? Jeez. And so the apple, the apple came from the United States. And I said, you know, what I believe happened is that Australia eventually imported quite a few apples and apple varieties uh, to Australia to try out uh, to see if they would be successful down there. I said, I, I think probably the Arkansas Beauty was one of those apples. And the story behind the, the Red Granny Smith was that in a, this happened in about 1930. The, the Red Granny Smith was supposedly discovered in Australia. And the story went something like that um, a fellow was uh, tending to his orchard and found this tree over on kind of the, uh, the fence line near the orchard and it turned out to be such a wonderful apple uh that he uh decided to uh grow it commercially and named it the red granny smith (laughs) no kidding well what i think happened was that tree was planted there on purpose uh and it was it was an arkansas beauty eventually you know property owners sell and, and the Red Granny Smith kind of, or excuse me, the, the Arkansas Beauty uh, fell into disfavor in Australia, just like it did in the United States. It became a lost variety, and other varieties were grown, and, for, and it was forgotten about. And then one day this guy found it on the edge of an orchard and thought it was uh, a tree that uh, there was, was only one of a kind. And I said, what do you think of that? And the uh, WSU professor said, well, he said it's possible. And uh, I, I, wonder I, how he, I, wonder, I wonder how he got there in the first place. With I, Miss, I, with, I think with, it was imported with Smith. along with other. Now, you have to remember that you seeds, uh, apple trees do not uh, propagate uh by seeds, or they don't they don't don't grow true to their seed. So you can't take a uh, a Honeycrisp apple 
and plant a seed from a Honeycrisp and expect right. to get a Honeycrisp out. Well, it's a hybrid, and it's sort of like a, a mule, right? Yes, yes. And so uh, just like, uh, you know, people, you know, you don't, it, we don't make clones of ourselves. And so I think probably sometime, maybe in the late 1800s, somebody took a bunch of apple, uh, uh, young apple trees over to Australia and planted them, and Arkansas Beauty was one of those trees. Yeah. And it was just later forgotten about. Well, the, you know, when you're talking, of course, I mean, you're, you're good at, you are an investigator. <laughs> but um, is there anything, because we've gone through this with the potatoes at the Potato Institute in Peru. Um, is, is there an equivalent apple kind of research center and museum like that here? You know, uh, I wouldn't say there's a um, that there's one place to go to for apple research. Uh, there are a, a number of places around the country. I'll give you some examples. Uh, Washington State University has. Uh, they're, of course, they're doing uh, DNA studies right now, but they also have a small campus over uh, in the uh, Wenatchee area where they're right in the middle of apple growing, and so they can be in contact with commercial apple growers. Uh, up in New York, at, uh, 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 near Cornell, there are oh, they, a, they go, yes, a USDA right, right. station up there that uh, has a huge apple orchard up there and uh they do apple research and and um and then there's uh there's just independent places around the country for example uh uh, there's a fellow uh, john bunker up in maine and he works for fedco seeds he does a lot of work he's found many many lost apples and he does a lot of heritage uh apple tree work uh, ourselves, we, of course, we, we do a lot of uh, heritage, uh, looking for heritage varieties and lost varieties, and we work closely with the Temperate Orchard Conservancy in Oregon, uh, and that's just a, a wonderful group. They have about... That's, you're talking about the Lost Apple Project itself. No, uh, this is actually a, a, a different uh, group, and it's the Temperate Orchard Conservancy. And we work with them, but they have, I believe it's, I want to say, 20 acres. And on those 20 acres, they've already planted over 4,000 varieties of apple trees. And it's a conservancy, and so it's meant to be the final home for uh Basically, all the varieties that they can stick in there, all the varieties that ha- are, have at one time or another grown in the United States. Interesting, man. They, I mean, the Potato Institute, they send seeds all over the world for people to, but oh. they have some issues. I mean, they they need to, um, uh, there's a, just a vitamin deficiency with potatoes that they need to um figure out how to overcome so that there's research going on. I mean, what is the purpose of just saving um, of, of the project you're working on? Just the idea of, of reviving production of the lost apples or saving them, or is it research? Is it history? What is it? You know, I would, I, I, I would say it kind of falls into two categories. What really uh, attracted me uh, to finding these old varieties was the history that uh, they have in the Northwest and uh, kind of a forgotten history. And when I, uh, but when I give talks, I've given many talks to at museums and civil civil groups and things like that. And it is amazing. I will uh, talk about these old varieties, and I can, and as I look at the people. Uh, especially the older individuals in in these groups. I start to talk about these old varieties, and you can actually just see in their eye that their memories are just flowing back at a time when they were really? in their mom's kitchen, and she was baking an apple pie or uh, <laughs> slicing an apple, and they haven't had that taste in maybe 60 or 80 years. And it's just uh, it's amazing 
the memories that are brought back just by, you know, these memories of apples. And, and apples were so important to the first homesteaders out here. They were oh, yeah. the, the most important fruit that and possibly uh, uh, food that they could have out here. I mean, apples not only... Uh, were one of the first fruits that you could eat during the summer. If you had a yellow transparent, you had fresh fruit in July. Then they would be followed by uh, other apples. And and what a pioneer nurseryman would do, and and when I say a pioneer nurseryman, there there was a nurseryman out here very early uh, on the Oregon Trail, and nurserymen were... This is like a Johnny Appleseed. Well, the the difference though, when is that when Johnny Appleseed went through Ohio and Kentucky and there he was planting apple seeds. When people came out west with the Oregon on the Oregon Trail and started planting orchards, they did not want to plant apple seeds. They wanted named varieties of apples. So and they uh-huh. would go to these pioneer nurserymen and ask him, what should I uh, plant? And he would say, well, the earliest apple is the yellow transparent. You want, then you want this next apple, because it'll, it'll follow right after that. And then you want these apples because they'll make the best canning apples. And these apples will be the best drying apples. And, oh, gosh, and then yeah. these apples will be the best winter keeper apples. So mm-hmm. they would, and some of them, like a Ben Davis, you could keep in your cellar till the next April, maybe wow. even into the next May. And so every apple had a specific purpose. And then, of course, uh, apple cider vinegar. That was a yeah, preservative, right. so you could preserve them. Apple cider, period, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but David, vinegar. is there a, I mean, this is also fascinating, um, but um, is there a website that people can go to to, to uh, continue their research into this kind of thing? Absolutely. We have a website. It's a, a Facebook page, and it's the Lost Apple Project. Facebook. And if and if people uh, would like to donate to our project, we, uh, they can go to the Whitman County Historical Society, and there's a, a donate button on their page. Okay. Is that named after, is that named after Walt, Walt Whitman? Uh, uh, no. Uh, I'm trying no. to think what Whitman it was, it was named after. It wasn't Walt, I can re- I can remember when I was oh, working I know what, on the. Oh, I'm sorry. I know what it was. It was uh, um, Marcus Whitman. Marcus uh-huh. Whitman was the um, uh, missionary who was killed uh, by Indians in 1847 near Walla Walla. Oh, boy, you have this. You have this, <laughs> a, a whole <laughs> mind stuffed with facts. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you, this is fascinating for us. I mean, of course, we have this huge interest in this. And you must be having a good time with working on this project. Absolutely. It's, it's a lot your of next fun. Pro- your next project is going to be winter winter wheat. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I, I, don't, I think this is my last project. <laughs> First well, no, and last. You, you, you said you live near Spokane. I went... The, yes. the, the way the way you get to Wazoo, which I did literally dozens of times across all the seasons, is you, you cross the most wonderful-looking wheat fields you've ever seen in your whole life, and they they're white, gorgeous. They're white hills. in deep winter. They're they're black in the spring, and they're golden in the summertime. Yes, that's that is true. So 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 you have another project you have to get involved in. <laughs> Well, uh, thank you so much for talking to us about this, David. Uh, and uh, uh, listeners, don't forget to, to check out the Facebook page, The Lost Apple Project, and uh, to, to learn more. Granny Smith's one, just green. Yeah, I know. I thought that that and was by definition. And the original red version might have come from Arkansas. <laughs> Yes, you'll, yeah. you'll, you'll learn a little I, something every day. We have an anniversary day. that I should mention. We do, okay. We're, we're, we're launching um, 2021 uh, 
as our 18th year broadcast. Oh, my God. I know. 18 years. We started in 2004. And we still love each other. (laughs) Amazing. And we hope that you love us too and that you'll join us again. Same time, same place next week. And until then. Bye-bye.